This audio lecture is brought to you by RTS on iTunes U at the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary. To listen to other lectures and to access additional resources, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu. For additional information on how to take distance education courses for credit towards a fully accredited Master of Arts in Religion degree, please visit our website at virtual.rts.edu. Things went along just fine until four months later after Urban had been elected. It's all a done deal at this point. Four months later, 12 of the 16 cardinals in the College of Cardinals declared that they had voted for Urban under duress. They said that they had been coerced by the people of Rome to elect an Italian. That they were not acting of their own accord. They felt pressure. They had to elect an Italian. And so, 12 of the 16 cardinals declared that Urban's election as Pope was invalid. They said, we take back our votes. Now, incidentally, 11 of these 12 cardinals were French. That is a big hint that they are under some measure of influence from the French king. So, these 12 renegade cardinals then proceeded, after having withdrawn their votes for Urban four months after the fact, decided to elect another pope, Pope Clement VII. And guess what? It just turns out that he is not only French, but he is the cousin of the French king. This is a family affair, you see. Uh, I don't, uh, I don't know. No, no, that's it's been seventy years. Clement the seventh is the the second pope. Now Clement the seventh was no fool. He knew that it would be better for him to have his papacy not in Rome, but back in Avignon, France. So. Here he goes. Clement VII goes back to Avignon and in the shadow of the French king. And so now the church has a very interesting situation. Two popes lawfully elected by a majority of the same college of cardinals. Wow. Now what this did, of course, is this forced people in, the, in, in Christendom to sort of choose which pope was the true pope. And because people had to choose this very much divided Christendom along political lines, some countries such as England and its allies supported the Roman 
Pope. France, of course, and its allies supported the French Pope. Well, with this kind of division, you can imagine that the papacy sunk in the the polls. I mean, people didn't know quite which pope to support. This schism, as it's called, a schism, it's called the Great Schism because you have a division. Those who supported the Roman pope and those who supported the French pope. The schism lasted 40 years, approximately 40 years until 1417. Worst of all, the spiritual validity of the papacy was under a cloud of doubt. Because you see, the validity of the institution itself, the institution of the papacy, rested on the claim of spiritual descendancy from the Apostle Peter. When you have two and later three popes competing with one another, the whole question of apostolic succession created grave doubt among the people of Europe. So, the papacy with two and three popes all claiming spiritual descendancy from Peter all at the same time left people in a quandary. Obviously, there was a false pope running amok. Well, so there is a decline as a result of the Babylonian captivity and the Great Schism. The papacy as an institution is is in decline in the opinion of the people. Something's not right, and everybody can see that. Now, to add insult to injury, besides these sort of... uh, church problems, there are other problems that also add to this decline in the popularity and authority of the Pope. Of the Pope. There were all kinds of ecclesiastical abuses. Uh, I'm going to talk about abuses on two fronts. Economic abuses and moral abuses. Now, this, the fact that abuses that I'm going to talk about actually occurred is beyond doubt. Whether you are a Catholic or a Protestant, it is generally recognized by Catholic historians and theologians as well that these kinds of abuses did occur. Let's talk mostly about economic corruption. When there are two and three papal courts to support... Raising money became a major preoccupation of the papacies. And the popes raised income from various sources. I'll mention just a few of the ways that they raised money. And it created some discontent among the people. I'll mention, first of all, annates. A-N-N-A-T-E-S. I think I spelled it up here. Annates. Annates, as the term suggests, 
refers to the first year's income of a church official. Say you were a bishop and you collect, you had a diocese in which there were several churches. Uh, some of the money from each of those churches went into your bank account as the bishop. And the sum total of what you would bring in in a year as a bishop, that first year after you became bishop of a diocese, the entire first year's income went to Rome or to the papal court of your choice, I suppose. That is called annates. <clears throat> Bishops found that a little difficult <laughs> because it, it uh, some of them, I mean, that's why some of them were actually quite wealthy. In some cases, this idea of annates gave rise to all kinds of other abuses. For example, in some cases, you'd find some chap who wanted to be the next bishop of whatever, whether whatever city or diocese. And so in anticipation of the death of the present incumbent, he would estimate what the first year's income would be and he would pay it to the Pope ahead of time to reserve his place. Make a reservation or a down payment on that bishopric. Uh, so you have the papacy uh, drawing uh, significant incomes through annates. Another kind of abuse, an economic abuse that occurred, is what is called simony. This was one of the most corrupt practices uh, in the late medieval church. Simony is a general term which refers to any practice in which benefits are exchanged for financial remuneration. Let me explain. In particular, we might say that simony has to do with the buying and selling of church offices. You want to be a bishop? Line my pockets with a little cash, says the Pope and I will appoint you bishop of whatever. That's the basic idea behind simony. That someone who has enough money can buy a church office apart from any consideration to his spiritual qualifications to rule the flock or to lead the flock in a given area. So your description of um, a he might, yes, there's a little bit of overlap there. That's right. That's, that's certainly uh, an act of simony. You find other kinds of, of uh, things. One thing I need to mention here. Now, I, I've identified a couple kinds of economic abuse. It needs to be understood that this was not the official teaching of the church. The church did not. I mean, they, they did. It was the official teaching of Annates. Uh, but simony was illegal according to the church statutes. What we're talking about here is an abuse. It's, I don't want you to think that the church supported officially the idea of simony, buying and selling church offices. That is not the case. What we're talking about is the abuse of 
of a system. So the practice of simony was actually condemned at various points. Uh, one of the, I guess one of the best examples of this is a man who lived uh, as a contemporary of Luther's, a man named Albert of Brandenburg in Germany. Albert was, he purchased a number of offices. Albert was not only the Archbishop of Magdeburg, not only was he the Bishop of Halberstadt, but he was also the Archbishop of Mainz. All of these offices were held by one individual. And of course he wanted that. He purchased these offices. So he, these are considered essentially uh, investments. Because if you're the archbishop, that means you have, you're going to have a regular significant income from the various churches uh, under your, your area. Another abuse that occurred was absenteeism. Obviously, and this is somewhat related to, uh, to simony, if you, if you have multiple offices, two archbishoprics and a single bishopric in one person, it's a little difficult to actually be resident in all those places at the same time. So what you have is absenteeism. You have bishops and archbishops who have spiritual responsibility over a given region who never show up to exercise spiritual leadership. There's one story of a French archbishop who visited his diocese only once to be buried. We have example of an Italian cardinal who never visited his constituents in 30 years. So you have this problem of, of, of people who are given spiritual responsibility for given areas and they don't take it seriously. The people see this sort of thing. There is a level of discontent among the people. Another kind of fee, and this borders on, on the moral corruption as well. But there was what was called a concubinage fee. A concubinage fee. Let me explain that. Now, of course, uh, celibacy was a requirement of the priesthood. But in the late Middle Ages, a good number of priests felt that they could not maintain that celibacy. In some regions, it became pretty much accepted that the priest lived with, in effect, a spouse. Uh, given the fact that in particular areas was essentially a custom, people just accepted it, uh, the bishop, in order to make the offspring of this relationship legitimate, would charge a fee to the priest for sort of overlooking the requirements that the priest be celibate. So the priest would have to figure out some way to raise a little income, pay a fee to the bishop, and the bishop would sort of over, uh, overlook the, the problem of his concubine. Yes? Wasn't the issue of celibacy um, 
almost like a moral corruption in the church? Wasn't that started because of the property that the church owned that they didn't want split off to the families of these different bishops? Is that a misunderstanding? Yeah. That's what someone said. I don't know if, if that, that is true or not. Well, that doesn't that doesn't that doesn't uh, sound right to me at all. How did the celibacy issue start? Then? Well, celibacy is is a question. I don't want to get off here too much, but celibacy goes the, the, the desire for a celibate uh, clergy. You find evidences of that in the very earliest church, <clears throat> and I think in 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 also you also find people like Augustine. In some ways, he is the single figure who gave the strongest push to celibacy in the church than anyone else. It already existed in the early church. Fourth, fifth century, Augustine comes along and he makes a big deal about celibacy. And he was a major theologian, maybe the major theologian. And so he really strongly pushed celibacy for himself and for the rest of the church. So that those the origins go way, way back. I think maybe what she's thinking of, I'm not sure, is that lots of monks set into monkery in order to keep land from being divided. Oh, oh, oh. Well, I mean, that that's maybe, but that's not why celibacy was was. Right. Well, sure. I mean, that meant that the child would have a vocation, uh, particularly if you were a second or third son who would not inherit the land. Uh, only the oldest son inherited the farm or the, or the property or whatever. Uh, subsequent sons, sometimes, sometimes daughters as well, were sent off to nunneries. Uh, but that's not the reason for celibacy. Celibacy goes back to the early church and then especially Augustine. Okay? Well, you can see uh, what Joseph Lortz, a Catholic historian, calls curial fiscalism. Uh, you don't need to really know that term. But curial refers to uh, the, the upper clergy, and fiscalism refers to uh, gaining funds, income. Uh, lots of economic kinds of things. I mean, here you have a bishop who is exploiting financially the priest who finds it difficult to maintain his vows of celibacy. That's what you would it amounts to. So you have a church from top to bottom who is, fi who is finding ways to, to, to bilk somebody else out of money. Uh, and that's why a Catholic historian speaks of this period as a time of curial fiscalism. It's a time where people are very, very concerned about, the, where the church is concerned about money. I can't help but stop and say things haven't changed that much, have they? I, um, some of you know, I think know my my sentiments about that, but uh, I think just a, a word here. Uh, I uh, I deplore very strong, and I and I and I trust that you do too. Churches that are uh, primarily are overly concerned about ways in which they can get into the, into the pockets of their congregations. Uh, I've told this story. Most of you have heard this. Some of you haven't. I was an assistant pastor in a church uh, while I was in seminary. 
and uh, we were at a at a, at a, a church staff meeting. And the senior pastor, reformed, I might add, went around the room to the staff of about six and said, who do you know who's got money in the congregation? My head hurt and my heart hurt worse to see these ministers thinking of people in terms of how much income they have. That is appalling. And I, and, I, and I trust that when you get out in your ministries, we all know we need money, okay? I, I don't have any problem with legitimate kinds of concerns for finances. But I pray with all my heart that the men and women who come from this institution will not be so preoccupied with, with money. I, I really do think that is the, <laughs> the concern for money is the root of all evil. And, and I, I, I just say it, and I'll probably say it in every class that I teach here. Be careful about the money bit. Don't let that become too much a part of, what you're, of your concerns as a minister or as a missionary. Or even whatever you do. Uh, I, I think that sometimes uh, in this drive for success and having big churches, we, we get consumed with... with Finding ways to have uh, to, to, to secure money, to build bigger buildings, to, to have all these extras. And I don't think that's what the ministry is all about. I really, really don't. And even if you have to have a smaller building, uh, I, I don't think having a big church is the goal. It's not the measure of success. What's the measure of success is how your people are growing in the Lord. It's spiritual growth, not necessarily numerical growth. There are a lot of fine, small churches out there. There are a lot of fine, big churches out there. But the goal is not numerical growth, per se. The goal is spiritual growth. And I think when you sometimes we get caught up in, in numbers, and when you get preoccupied with that, then it's not long when you start becoming preoccupied with ways to, to generate funds. So we need to be very careful about those kinds of things. I, I, I'm, I don't mean to preach. Not today anyway. But uh, that, that is a concern that I do see in, in evangelicalism today. Yeah, and I think a lot of those lines too. I mean, I can't think of many churches that have actually gone bankrupt as well. I know a lot of churches are in financial straits. Yeah. But, um, and it, although it does happen, there are very few churches who actually have to go through bankrupt. Yeah, yeah. And you're a lawyer, right? You know about that stuff. Yeah. Well, I do. I, I, I've just seen so many. I think the thing that concerns me is is, is not the money per se. It's, it's, it's the desire... Uh, to, to, to be looked at as a success. And I think we, when, we become, when that becomes the standard, is big churches, large numbers of people attending, then that leads us down paths such as an inordinate desire to, to have funds and have big buildings and gymnasiums and all those kinds of things. I have nothing against gymnasiums. It's just that I don't know if that's our priority as ministers of the gospel. Anyway, one fellow visited Rome in 1491. This is what he said, talking of the papacy in particular. I can see that everything here can be bought from top to bottom.
the bottom. So it was pretty obvious that there were uh, economic abuses in Rome. There were also moral abuses, sexual immorality. I've alluded to that already. I'll be brief here. I don't have a name. I got that from Lou Spitz, professor at Stanford. Uh, there was widespread breakdown of celibacy among priests. Official documents. Now, these are not just Protestants speaking. These are official documents from the church recorded by Roman Catholic officials reveal that in the 16th century, somewhere around one quarter of all clergy in the Netherlands, one quarter of the clergy in the Netherlands, and one third of the clergy in southern Germany were living with concubines. Yeah, one third of the clergy in southern Germany and one fourth of the clergy in the Netherlands. Those are the areas for which we have some documentation. So I'm not speaking here about opinions. I'm talking about documents which indicate that this was a significant problem in these two regions. It was a problem in other regions as well, but these are the two for which we have uh, documentary evidence. And, and I should quickly add here that this was a problem that also uh, troubled some of our esteemed uh, reformers. Uh, I think of one in particular, Ulrich Zwingli, the reformer of Zurich, uh, when he was applying for the post as Leut Priester of, of, uh, of Zurich, he, he, the, the, the city council heard rumors that he'd had an affair in the previous city. And they wrote to Zwingli. Zwingli at this point was one of two candidates for this very distinguished position. And they said, Ulrich, we hear that you've had a sexual affair. What's the word? Zwingli writes back and says, well, you've heard correctly. I did have an affair. Uh, but it was her fault. <laughs> That's just what he said, basically. So even some, I mean, this is a problem that, that is very much evident throughout Europe. You find cases like, remember the Archbishop of Mainz, Albert of Brandenburg? Well, he wasn't satisfied with simply one concubine. He seems to have had virtually a harem in Halle. Uh, that he uh, occasionally visited. And of course, popes themselves uh, had problems in this area as well. One of the most famous, or should I say notorious, late medieval popes was Innocent VIII. Innocent was the father of, not eight, 16 children from various women. He openly acknowledged his children and in some cases even celebrated their marriages at the Vatican. So, my point here is, is to say that even on the low, the priestly level, you have a problem on the sexual, in the sexual area. Archbishops, higher clergy, have a problem. And popes have a problem here. This is a problem that goes from top to bottom. One historian, late 15th century, writes, quote, So much evil cannot be said of the Roman Curia that more does not deserve to be said of it, for it is an infamy, an example of all the shame and wickedness in the world. 
There you have a contemporary view of the kinds of corruptions that were occurring in Rome just before the Reformation occurred. The point in all of these first four points is that the church is in decline morally, economically, and institutionally. A friend of mine from Cambridge wrote a book in which one of the first sentences went something like this. At the turn of the 16th century, there was not a man alive in Europe who did not realize that Reformation was inevitable. Things had gotten pretty bad. And there was a desire for reform among people even in the church. Now, one quick point here about lay piety. You, you might think with all this kind of corruption going on in the church, economic and moral and institutional, that the lay person seeing all of this would say, hey, who needs it? Who needs religion? If the, if the priests can't keep their pants on, why should I? You would think logically that that would be the kind of thing that, that the lay persons might say. It is one of the startling paradoxes that when disenchantment with the papacy was the most complete, resentment against abuses burned most fiercely that the religious fervor of the common man became most intense. Say that again. When disenchantment with the papacy was most complete and resentment against the abuses burned most fiercely, the religious fervor of the common man became more intense. Now, this does not mean they became more orthodox in their theology. It means that they sought out other ways to express their piety. Sometimes, and in many cases, it turns out in very superstitious kinds of ways. We find, for example, that in the light of all of these kinds of problems in the church, that the layperson, uh, we, we find that there's an increase in things like veneration of the saints. Uh, you find people uh, praying to saints, uh, praying that the saint will bless them. Some dearly departed saint, like St. George for the soldiers, St. Bartholomew for butchers. Every group in society had their patron saint. And these saints were important to the people. I mean, I mean it's, one of the reasons you have dead saints is because the people are looking for someone who is holy and righteous because they don't see too many priests and archbishops and popes who exhibit the kind of godliness that they desire. And so that's sort of a natural movement toward those who, had, who exhibited that kind of lifestyle in the past. And so the people redirect their focus in many respects away from the current uh, priesthood to people who, who epitomize godliness, dead saints. So various groups pray to these saints that God, that through them, God will protect them and bless them. So you have this increase in the veneration of saints. In particular, you have 
a very distinctive rise in devotion to Mary in this period. 14th and 15th century, devotion to Mary dramatically increased. There had always been a very high view of Mary throughout church history. But we find a real significant intensification of this in the 14th and 15th century. You can find people during this period who start talking about the immaculate conception of Mary. Although this was debated among the the theologians, there's still talk about these kinds of things, which is indicative of the very, very high esteem with which, uh, in which Mary was held. You find other features that express this, this, this intensified lay piety in the veneration of relics. Bones and body parts of, of dearly departed saints are collected in certain places. People would take pilgrimages to come and to pray in front of these, hoping for a miracle. Sound familiar? Sounds very... I mean, we look at... We, we think about these relics and we sort of say, oh, that's old, that's old in the past. That's kind of uh, old hat stuff. You ever turn on the television on Sunday morning? Sometimes you see some of these guys uh, willing to send you something if you'll, and they'll pray for you and miracles and... Oh, it's, it's a, a little frightening. But anyway, you find this really increase in, 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 a, in, a, in, in veneration of relics and people making pilgrimages to certain places to see relics. Shrines are established. And all of these things indicate a rise in religious piety. Very superstitious piety, to be sure. But there is, there, it's, it's not a rejection of religion. It's, it's a redirection of religion among the lay people in reaction to these kinds of problems. It's very, very interesting. And I think, despite the fact that the leadership of the late medieval church uh, left a lot to be desired, we have to appreciate that people only knew of one church. If, if your leaders in your church are not doing as they ought, leaving the church was not an option, really. That meant eternal damnation to go outside the church. And so instead of leaving the church, the people went the only way... They, they stayed within the church, but they redirected their spirituality away from the present leaders into this sort of spiritual realm of the dearly departed saints. James, I wonder how much the, uh, the fact that the, the government was politically aligned with the church had a lot to do with keeping you know, the people under wraps. If they knew not only the power of the Pope, but also the power of the local baron or Duke, who was directly answerable to the Holy Roman Emperor, whether that uh, they felt so oppressed that uh, they, could, they, they would make a difference, even if they were to rise up. And so that's why this redirection. Yeah. Well, the society was such that revolt was not a real option. I mean, there were occasional episodes like that throughout church history, but by and large, uh, that was a very risky proposition. I mean, when you're you're sort of taught from the cradle to the grave that this is the only church, and they were all in this together, barons and dukes and princes and kings, all belong to the same church. Revolution 
uh, reformation, revolution is just simply not an option to these people. They weren't programmed for that. Uh, and yes, all aspects of society, church and state, work together to maintain this, this sense of profound unity and, and excluding alternatives. So yeah, it's a, it's a very insular kind of society we have in the late medieval period, to be sure. And everything is reinforces everything else. Having said all of this, it needs to be appreciated that there was, there, there was, uh, there were uh, some attempts at reform from within. Protestants, and this is where I differ from a lot of Protestant historians at this point. Uh, a lot of Protestant historians, I suspect, would simply leave the matter like it is. I've painted a very negative picture, haven't I? about the state of the church. And, and, I, and I think it's an accurate picture. But there's one other thing to add. There were attempts from within the church to change things. There were some responsible bishops, some responsible archbishops, and even some popes tried to initiate reform. And that needs to be said to have a more accurate picture. There is a lot of corruption in the Catholic Church of the late Middle Ages, but not everyone was corrupt. We, have been, we know, for example, at the Fifth Lateran Council, 1512 to 1517, that this council was kicked off by a speech in which the theme was, this church needs to be reformed in its head and in its body. The head being the Pope, and the cardinals, and the bishops, and the body being the people. So there was an official recognition by higher-ups, cardinals, who recognized that the church was corrupt in many ways and needed to be reformed. Fifth Lateran Council, 1512, before Luther uh, kicks off the Reformation. There was also the Reform Commission of 1537. Pope Paul III, again, saw that the church was corrupt in many, many ways. And he and a number of other people, people like Cardinal Contarini, a very significant individual, set up a commission brought in a bunch of reform-minded bishops, and they put forth a document stating the areas in which the church needed to change, needed to have reformation. So I don't want you to walk out of this class thinking that the Catholic Church was utterly 100% evil and wicked. That is not accurate. Serious problems serious corruption, serious abuses, but there was a movement from within by substantial, significant persons such as Cardinal Contarini, and I could name you others, who tried to bring about reform from within the church itself. Would you say 1537, the Reformation is well underway? It is. How much of the desire for reform came from a legitimate spiritual motive? Well, the one I'm talking about, yep, yep. Well, certainly, 
Not, not only they had eyes themselves, so they saw the corruption, but certainly people like Luther and others made the point once again. See, Luther was still, you know, even as late as 1537, uh, he'd been, he had been excommunicated, but there were still talks between the Lutheran camp and the Catholics about possibly getting back together. That possibility was held out virtually to the end of Luther's life. So we need to appreciate that there, there are all kinds of dynamics at work here. But, but I think when I talk about the Reform Commission of 1537, when you look at the character of the people on that, you find people like uh, Matteo Ghiberti, Bishop of Verona, who was a man who was deeply opposed to the abuses he saw in the papacy, the moral and immora the, the immorality that he saw, and he and his diocese encouraged Bible study as a Catholic, who led Bible studies as a Catholic, uh, you find a number of people like that. I can t mention a fellow in, in the 1530s as well, Juan de Valdez, a Spaniard who was in, Ro who was in Rome and then Naples. Uh, he used to lead these Bible studies in which bishops and cardinals would come to. And they would study the, the epistles of Paul. And he was teaching double predestination. He was teaching justification by faith alone in the heart of Roman Catholicism. So you do find, what I'm trying to get across here, is that there were genuine desires for real reform. But a desire for reform does not necessarily mean that you have to leave the church. These are attempts and desires from within to change the church. And for them, it was not an option to leave the church, by and large. They felt that Luther was too revolutionary and should have stayed and worked from within. This audio lecture is brought to you by RTS on iTunes U at the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary. To listen to other lectures and to access additional resources, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu. For additional information on how to take distance education courses for credit towards a fully accredited Master of Arts in Religion degree, please visit our website at virtual.rts.edu.